Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of Heart to Heart with Anna. This is the 13th and final episode of season 12. Our theme this season has been organ donation and transplantation, and I've loved getting to meet all of these wonderful people that have been guests on my show this season. Today, I am so excited to feature Vakas Mahajan. Our show is entitled Thankful for the Elvad Bridge to Transplant. Vakas Mahajan is a 20-plus year IT professional specializing in information security. He is married to Jyoti, and he has two daughters, Aria and Syra. Vikas has a genetic defect which has affected his heart. He has had multiple procedures and surgeries throughout his life. Born with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, he has had to endure the implantation of pacemakers, implantable cardioverter defibrillators, or ICDs, and a left ventricular assist device, also known as an LVAD. His ultimate surgery was heart transplantation. Vakas will share his medical history with us, how he came to need an LVAD, and in the last segment, he will tell us about receiving the gift of life and offer some advice for others who might be walking the same path he did. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Vakas. Hi, Anna. Very excited to be here. I'm so happy to have you here today. Let's start by talking about when you first discovered you had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Tell us about the symptoms that you had and how you knew something was wrong. As a child, I was very active in sports. I remember playing soccer from about first through the fourth or fifth grade, as well as basketball and baseball. I loved playing sports. And I discovered around fourth or fifth grade that I was really struggling to keep up with the other kids. When we ran laps and did practices or during games, I would often have to stop and catch my breath. And sometimes I would feel strong chest pains as well. These were the first signs that something was wrong. So we went to my family physician to get it checked out. You'll have to remember this was way back in the late 80s and very little was known about this condition. I was also growing at the time. Over the next few years, I grew taller than anyone in my family. My shoe size even ballooned to a size 13. The doctors really couldn't find anything specifically wrong at the time. So she thought that perhaps I was simply growing so quickly that my heart was unable to keep up and it would eventually catch up and grow with the rest of my body and this would go away. That was the hope. But unfortunately, that never really happened. And I struggled through this period of time with shortness of breath and chest pains. And finally, around eighth or ninth grade, she referred us to a cardiologist. And that's when I was officially diagnosed with a condition called idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis, IHSS, which later was revised to be known as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or HCM, the more common term used today. HCM is basically a condition where there's muscle growth inside of the heart. 
and it's obstructing the flow of blood from the left ventricle. In my case, I had what's called an enlarged septum. The septum is the muscle that separates the left and right sides of your heart. And mine was growing so thick that it was preventing the left ventricle from being able to pump out blood properly. And it was also blocking one of the valves, the mitral valve. And so it could not fully open and close under times of stress or rigor, such as running or walking up a hill or climbing a few flights of stairs. And this was the challenge. And it wasn't just playing sports, unfortunately. It was literally every day I would struggle with this, just trying to live, you know, walking to school, doing things like that. It was an everyday occurrence multiple times a day. Did you ever faint? There was one episode where I fainted, and this happened later towards my senior year and ultimately led to the next course of treatment for me, which was the pacemaker. I was actually running towards the school bus. The school bus had come early that day, and I pushed myself so hard trying to catch the bus that I pushed past the chest pains and eventually just ended up waking up flat on the ground because I had collapsed. Oh, wow. That's scary. It was very scary. And I was out for about not very long, maybe 10, 15 seconds. And I got right back up and hopped on the bus. Of course, the kids on the bus were laughing. They thought I tripped over myself, but I had completely fainted and collapsed. And that was that was the one time I actually pushed myself so hard. There were several times where I came close. I was dizzy and, and stuff like that. But that was the, the one time where I actually completely collapsed. Wow. You know, the first thing that is shocking to me is that it sounds like you were about six or seven years old when you first started to have symptoms and nobody recommended you go to a cardiologist then, that it wasn't for years. I mean, over a decade, right? It took a while. I would say I was probably fourth or fifth grade, maybe or nine or 10 years old. And yeah, it did take several more years before it simply wasn't going away that we got referred to a proper cardiologist. And as I said, this being in the early days, there just wasn't a lot known. There wasn't a lot of yeah. information about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy like there is today. You know, it was just a challenge to find out what was going on. Yeah. Did you have any kind of treatment in those early days? I'm trying to remember at the time, they may have put me on a medication. I know certainly once I was diagnosed, I was put on beta blockers and eventually onto calcium channel blockers because for some reason, beta blockers are the traditional way you treat heart failure or HCM as well, but it wasn't treating my chest pains. And so eventually we get switched to calcium channel blockers and that at least controlled the chest pain part of my problem. So those were the main treatments at the time were just medication. So you didn't have any surgeries as a child? Not until I was 17. After I had collapsed, um, we went back to the cardiologist and that sort of set in motion the decision to move beyond just medication and add a pacemaker to the treatment plan. Oh, wow. The idea at the time, again, this was now the early 90s, about 1993 is when I got the pacemaker. In between my graduating high school and entering college, I was 17 at the time. The reason for the pacemaker, the concept at the time was that they were trying to change the way the heart was beating. You know, traditionally, your heart sort of pumps left, right, left, right very quickly, the two chambers of your heart pumping together. What they were trying to do was slightly offset the pace of the heart such that it would go left, right in a little slower fashion, left than right, left than right. And that way, it would basically cause the heart to give a little more time to allow hopefully that left ventricle to pump more blood and that valve to stay open a little bit longer so that maybe a little bit more blood could flow through. That was the concept, the theory behind what they were trying to do. Unfortunately, that didn't really work. And that approach has since fallen out of favor in the medical community as well. And so, yeah, when you pump right to left, it's going to contract differently. And so this was kind of where the challenge was with the heart. And unfortunately, the pacemaker by itself was not able to provide that functionality for me. 
Texas Heart Institute were offering us a mechanical heart and he said, no, Dad, I've had enough. Give it to someone who's worthy. My father promised me a golden dress to twirl in. He held my hand and asked me where I wanted to go. Whatever strife or conflict that we experienced in our long career together was always healed by humor. Heart to Heart with Michael, please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home tonight forever. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Before the break, we were talking about your heart condition and when you had your first medical treatment, which sounds like it was mostly medication and then finally a pacemaker. I know from your bio that in 2011, you went into congestive heart failure. So I'm guessing that the pacemaker wasn't good enough to keep you out of heart failure. So why don't you tell me about that time? Sure. That was a little bit later in life. The good thing was I enjoyed a good 15 plus years, pretty stable. Once we got the medication straightened out, the pacemaker was implanted and I graduated college. I started a career, started a family, settled down and life was very good. But unfortunately, my condition very slowly at the time deteriorated over several years, obviously, until it finally got to the point where it actually occurred while we were on vacation. We had gone to Disney World with the family and we were staying at one of the Disney World resorts and we were walking from our hotel room to the cafeteria. And normally that's a very straightforward walk for me. It wouldn't have been a problem. But that day I was struggling to get to the cafeteria. I had to stop several times along the way and catch my breath and didn't really understand why. We had just arrived in Florida. I thought maybe allergies or something like that. And it ended up not going away. And I basically realized that something else must have been going on as well. We struggled that whole week in Florida with getting around the parks. Obviously, those parks are very large. They're huge. And it's so usually hot and muggy, which is probably not the weather conditions you were accustomed to being from New England. It was definitely a difficult time getting around. But fortunately, my kids were small and we took our time and we were able to enjoy the parks. But we got home. I went right back to work the following day. And I was at the time commuting into Washington, D.C., taking the subway. There's lots of walking obviously, when you take public transportation. And I remember specifically trying to walk from the metro subway station to my office, and I could barely walk 10 steps or 12 steps without having to stop and catch my breath for one or two minutes, 10 or 12 steps and do it again. And it was really challenging even getting to the office. And that's when I went back to the cardiologist. Cardiologist took a look ran some tests, did an echocardiogram, did a chest x-ray, and they found that my lungs had filled up with fluid. And I actually had to get my lungs tapped, and they took out, I believe, about a liter of fluid from one of my lungs. 
it had filled up so much. And that's also when the cardiologist looked at my condition and said, your echocardiogram no longer shows that you have HCM. I'm not seeing that as being the problem, the enlarged septum as being the obstruction. You're now in congestive heart failure or CHF. And that's when we basically now got re-diagnosed as having congestive heart failure. My hypertrophic cardiomyopathy had evolved and basically progressed into CHF. And that's when my cardiologist recommended I change from having just a pacemaker to now getting an ICD. Okay. So that's a big change for you. You're a father of two small children. I'm sure that was really concerning to you. Absolutely. That was a big deal for us with two young children at the time and obviously now dealing with heart issues all over again. I thought I had passed all these heart issues because things were so stable for so many years and now here they were coming back up again and it was it was obviously creating a lot of stress. But fortunately, you know, I agreed to doing the ICD. I understood the benefits. The main reason for this was twofold. One is they wanted to try and install this as what they call a biventricular pacing device, meaning a traditional pacemaker only works usually on one side of your heart. But with these new ICD devices, they could do what's called biventricular pacing. They could actually put leads on both sides of the heart and control the way both sides of the heart ran. So they were attempting to do that. And of course, the ICD gives you that emergency backup in case your heart does go out of rhythm or fail. It can shock you back into a normal rhythm. So the doctor felt it was better to have that safety measure in place as well. Unfortunately, the biventricular pacing, they could never get installed properly. When they put the pacemaker in, we couldn't get the second wire. So I ended up with just the traditional pacing. But at least I had the ICD as that emergency backup in case my heart did have an issue and it needed to be kicked back into gear. And don't the ICDs also have a memory where they can keep a record of your heartbeat? So if your heartbeat starts to be erratic or you start to have certain arrhythmias, that there's a record of it? Yes, the ICDs were technologically advanced. They could store all kinds of information, uh, histograms, and they could also monitor fluid levels in the heart and oh, all wow. kinds of things. So there were lots of benefits to having this more advanced device than just a traditional pacemaker that we were able to take advantage of. So how many years had you had the pacemaker? The pacemaker I had since 1993 through about 2011. And I had one battery change at that time, one device change. You're kidding. It lasted that long? The first one I had lasted about 13 or 15 years before I had to change it. That's phenomenal. I kind of want to know what brand it was to give a plug to them because that's just phenomenal. It was a Medtronic Minuet pacemaker. I actually still have it with me. I asked them if I could keep it when they took it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's part of your history. I would too. And it saved your life probably. It was definitely a one-of-a-kind unit. Unfortunately, ICDs don't last that long. They typically last maybe up to five years, maybe seven years if you're lucky. So it was definitely nice not having to go through multiple surgeries frequently to change. Right. I think the ICDs have to work so hard since they're gathering so much information. It doesn't surprise me that they don't last quite as long. But it seems to me that from your bio, even the ICD wasn't good enough to take care of all of your problems. Tell me what happened when your health started to decline again. Yes. Yeah, so basically what happened after the ICD was put in, I definitely felt better, but we combined that with a number of other treatments. The primary one being the fluids. I had to now take a diuretic as well to keep fluids off of my body. And we also switched over time to a lower sodium diet, trying to adjust the way I ate so I retained less fluid. For anyone with serious heart issues, they'll often put you on this cardiac type of diet where you're trying to eat about 1,500 milligrams of sodium per day, which is very little. It's about two-thirds of a teaspoon of salt. Um, and so it takes a lot of adjusting and getting used to trying to find a diet that works. Right. I mean, forget eating out. 
Yes, exactly. Because eating out people, the fast food restaurants and even nice quality restaurants, they kick in a bunch of salt without even thinking about it. You got it. That's what restaurants are doing, right? They're trying to play to your taste buds. And so they enhance the food with lots of sweets, lots of salts. And so unfortunately, that made eating very difficult. And I had to learn to start cooking on my own and preparing things and learning to do it, which I enjoyed and eventually picked up. But when I first went through it, it was a big change and really took a lot of work and effort to learn how to do that. But you know, those dietary changes along with the diuretic were meant to just keep the fluids off. The problem was my heart was still getting weaker and weaker. And it was happening much more rapidly than before. Whereas before it took 15 years for my heart to go from HCM to heart failure. Now in the next two years from 2012 to 2014, I was becoming much, much weaker. I could, by the summer of 2014, I couldn't even walk up a flight of stairs without having to stop and catch my breath. Wow. It was that bad. It had progressed so quickly. So what options did they present you with? Basically, what we did at that time in 2014, other parts of my body were having issues. You know, I simply wasn't getting enough blood to supply my body's needs. And my cardiologist finally said to me one day, look, I've taken this as far as I can. I can't treat this anymore. I need to get you to heart failure specialists. And so he referred me back to Washington Hospital Center to the advanced heart failure team there. And that's when we started looking at what to do about the heart failure issue specifically. And I went down there one day and they ran some tests and they immediately admitted me to the, to the hospital in order to knock fluids off of my body. And they told me that day, look, they explained to me the four stages of heart failure. And basically, I was in the later stages. I was going from stage C, which was basically allowing you to get treated with medications and with diuretics, to now evolving into the last and final stage, which is stage D, which basically meant you needed a heart transplant or some other you know, serious medical invention, surgical, that would ultimately fix the issue. And that's when it really really hit me hard. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. I am with Origami Owl Jewelry, and we personalize lockets. It has helped me heal so much by having that locket. I've had other friends and customers who have created lockets. They love their lockets, and they gift lockets to people who are bereaved, or they're celebrating somebody. To get your own Origami Owl locket, contact Nancy Jensen on Facebook or her website, nancydancyme.origamiowl.com. Before we went to break, you were telling us that things were becoming dire. Tell us what happened next. So this was the first time I ever heard the term LVAD in my life. The doctor said simply that there weren't enough hearts available for me to get a heart transplant quickly and that there was this technology called a left ventricular assist device that's basically a partial artificial heart that would take over the pumping of the left side of my heart, which is where all my problems were, and would provide me two benefits. One was it would give me the time I needed to wait 
for the heart transplant, which he said in the D.C. area was roughly at least two years on average for someone to wait for a heart at that time with my blood type. And he said the other major thing was it would greatly improve the quality of my life. Shortness of breath would become a thing of the past. For example, I could enjoy an excellent quality of life for as long as I needed to wait for the new heart. This was pretty shocking to me. I had already been through several sets of man-made devices in my body, none of which really fixed my problem. So I was very skeptical. Sure, I would be too. Oh, yes. And so I did a lot of research. I went online, I found Facebook forums and groups and blogs, and I read about others who had gotten this LVAD device, and most of them were very happy with it. And they indeed said it improved the quality of their life. And so I said, okay, I'll go forward with it. And sure enough, in September of 2014, I was implanted with the LVAD. Now, is this something that is a major surgery where you had to be hospitalized for a long time, or was it like getting the pacemaker or the ICD? This was a major surgery, and indeed, it's considered the tougher of the two surgeries compared to heart transplant. The LVAD is the much more difficult surgery, and it was very much a big deal. I was in the hospital for about a month from the moment I got the LVAD to the time I was discharged from the hospital. It was about a month. And it took a good three months after that for me to finally feel normal. You know, I had to go through physical therapy, occupational therapy. You have to learn how to walk again and and all these types of things. It was definitely a big deal, but the payoff was amazing. I can tell you three months afterwards, I was up and about and I was ready to get back to work. Wow. I felt energetic. I felt strong. And most importantly, I was able to go and take my kids to school. I was never able to walk my children to school all those years. And finally, I had enough energy that I could go do that. And I loved every moment of it. That was the greatest thing in the world was taking my kids out and just walking them to school and spending time with them. The quality of life issues really went away. I could walk anywhere I needed to walk and not be short of breath anymore. So did this give you hope that once you got a heart transplant, you would resume a more normal life? Absolutely. I I knew that this was meant as a bridge, but it would give me all the time I needed. So I was very patient and I knew that I could just go back to living life. I didn't have to worry and think constantly about my heart. I could just go back to living life normally for as long as I needed to. But We all knew at the end of the day that the ultimate solution was to get the heart transplant because the quality of life after heart transplant, for those who have gone through LVAD and transplant, all of them will tell you that the heart transplant is the better option in the long run because the biggest limitation with the LVAD is you can't go swimming, for example, can't do anything in the water. My kids love to swim. And so that was a big part of it that I would love to have back is being able to now go back in the pool with my children and swim with them and do things like that. And again, I no longer have to wear a device around my neck and constantly change batteries and plug things in. So there's a certainly a much higher quality of life that I'll be able to enjoy now with the heart transplant once I recover fully from this as well. It'll take another few months. I just had the heart transplant a few months ago. So I'm on the recovery stages just like I was with the LVAD. But I know that the hope and the optimism that I enjoyed from the LVAD carried over to the heart transplant. And I knew it was going to be successful and very positive. So I was very happy. Well, tell us about how long you did wait with the LVAD before you got your heart. 
Sure. It was three years and 10 months I had the LVAD. Wow. And then I, out of the blue, I was very surprised. I got a call July 16th. I got a call from the heart transplant coordinator at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore telling me that they had an organ available. And they asked me how long it would take for me to get down to the hospital. It's about 50 miles away from my home. And I told it would take about an hour and a half to two hours for us to get there. You get things settled, you know, get my children taken care of. And sure enough, my wife had just pulled into the driveway with the kids. They had gone shopping. And I told her right away, I said, look, we need to go pack all this LVAD stuff and take it to the hospital. They have a heart a potential donor heart available, and we need to get going. Now, my kids, they were completely shocked, and they started crying, and they were very scared. I'm sure they were. It was a lot for them to absorb, but I immediately took them, and we hugged them, and we told them this was the ultimate journey, that this was actually a very, very good thing, and that now Daddy would no longer have to have the limitations he had now. He could go back and go swimming with them, and he could no longer had to wear this bag around his neck all the time, and all these wonderful things we could enjoy life again and be free of carrying these devices. And they did an excellent job. They really handled it well and understood. And eventually we were able to get them packed up and over to our neighbor's house so that mom and dad could focus on getting dad to the hospital. And so that evening we got to the hospital. They immediately got us into the ER and through the procedures and had a room for us. When we got upstairs, they gave us some more information. They basically said there's a team of doctors that are now at the donor site and examining the organ itself and making sure everything was healthy. And they felt very good about it. So they weren't concerned. And they thought the surgery would start around noon the next day. And then later on, they came back and informed us that actually this particular donor did a wonderful thing. They were able to use many organs from this donor. This donor saved many, many lives and was able to donate several other organs. And when they do organ explantation like that, they do the heart and lungs last. So it ended up that my surgery occurred the following day towards later in the afternoon or early evening time frame rather than at noon because they had to take the other organs out first and harvest them and then finally, they did the heart and lungs last. This this donor was wonderful and saved a lot of lives, including my own, and I'm very grateful. I'm sure you are. What an amazing story. Because if somebody is listening to this show who has been dealing with congestive heart failure and they're being offered the LVAD as a bridge to transplant, what would you say to them? I would tell them, take it. Don't hesitate. It will give you an excellent quality of life and allow you to continue living while you're waiting for that heart. And remember, you aren't just going through it to buy more time. The doctors are implementing this LVAD to let you enjoy life again. You'll be able to do things that you haven't been able to do in years. And the limitations are fairly minimal. As I said, you can't go swimming and you can't do physical sports, contact things. But outside of that, you can do and resume pretty much all the things in life you were doing. I mean, there are some LVAD patients out there who are bodybuilders and who are lifting weights and doing all the things they were doing before they got into heart failure. Whatever the cause of their heart failure was, they were able to go back and resume their lives. And there's no reason you should feel like it's going to hold you back. And even my family, we started going on family vacations again. We went as far up as Boston and Niagara Falls. We went down to Florida. We even went on a cruise. So we continued to live life while we were waiting for a heart transplant. And that's what the Elevad gave us the freedom to do. And this is very important to remember. The key to getting through this all is let the doctors take care of the heart. They know how to do that. That part of the things is their responsibility and they will do a wonderful job. Your job is to take care of your head, stay mentally strong, surround yourself with positive people and positive energy, and focus on taking care of keeping your mental state in good health. And I promise you, you can get through this and come out of it much stronger. 
Wow, I love it. That's such perfect advice. Thank you so much for coming on the program today, Vikas, and for sharing your experiences with the LVAD with us. I learned so much. I'm amazed at living over three years on this device. That is just amazing. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I am truly honored to share my story, and I certainly hope it will help others facing heart failure. Oh, absolutely. This story is a miracle of modern medicine, wouldn't you say? Correct. It really is. Wow. We're very fortunate to be living in these times. We are. We really are. And I feel blessed to have gotten a chance to meet you and to share this story with the world. That does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today, my friends. Find us on iTunes and subscribe. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time.